Hello and welcome to season two of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you confident Monday to Friday with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator of TBD Conference. Interviewing powerful people is easy, but that's not the Mouthwash way. And instead, we're exploring the less obvious elements of power this season. What's really driving the world? Who's behind the scenes to keep the wheels on? Who's messing things up? What's hard and soft power? And how have they changed during the pandemic? What does it all really mean? Who's got power? Who wants it? How do you get it? We're exploring it all. Joining me every episode is a smart cookie of my choosing, and tonight's cookie is none other than the Financial Times senior political bod, Henry Mance. Henry is an award-winning writer and has worn many hats at the FT during his tenure there. Now um, author, and uh, we'll be talking a lot about his new book soon, uh, Relationship to Pets, you know Henry Mance, uh, prolific writer. He's doing lots on um, satire, politics, hence why I thought he's the perfect person for mouthwash to talk about politics. Welcome to the show, Henry. How are you doing? I'm pretty good, thank you. Yeah, um, I can't say this is how I imagine the week ending for me, but, uh, you know, it's great. It's good. Exactly, exactly. We're going to ease our way into it with a little bit of political chat. Who doesn't want that, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Before uh, I chat more with Henry, let's talk about where we are and how you can get involved. Uh, Twitter Spaces is still a beta product from Twitter, so let's explore it a bit. On the mobile app, the top bit is called The Nest, where I or any speaker can post tweets like the ones you can see up the top. Mouthwash uses this to discuss in a very specific section called Desert Island Tweets. Uh, But you can click through, follow accounts, check links, see pictures and that sort of stuff. It's pretty handy and a really unique feature to Twitter Spaces. You can see all of your faces and the speakers are at the top. Spaces allow up to 11 speakers at a time, including the host, so you can have a really good conversation, but it's not a free-for-all with a mic and loads of multiple voices speaking over each other. I really like that they've sort of kept that simple. They'll probably open it up eventually, but for right now, it feels like a really smart play. You can request the mic in any space uh, just by clicking the mic in the bottom left, although Mouthwash is more of a show format, so we actually take the questions via the hashtag MouthwashShow. So click the title at the top on the blue and you save yourself some uh, some typing there and that sort of stuff. Twitter also recently uh, introduced a slew of monetization features, so you know they're actually really serious about spaces. Definitely something to look into on your own as a brand, whatever you want, check them out. If you look at the bottom right of your phone screens, you'll see some icons, some dots, some people, a heart, etc. and that sort of thing. The dots are where all the settings are, so you can turn those on for captions and other accessibility features. Twitter's thought a lot about that, so for a smart feature. Right, okay, time for you to do me a favour. Share out the space. Please click on the one on the right, the staple with the arrow pointing up, okay? I'll do the same. Uh, You'll let the world know that you found something great, and for every person that you entice into the space, a tree gets planted courtesy of the smart cookies over at Ecology, who are making offsetting carbon footprints super easy. You can find out more about Ecology over at ecology.com, that's E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com. Whether it's for personal stuff or your business, Elliot and the team over there are great partners to work with and i'm super thankful that they are doing what they are doing with mouthwash thanks also to shell for sponsoring the show shell has recently published a target to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner and that's obviously in separate society you can find out more about how shell's powering progress over at shell.com forward slash powering progress right okay it is time to use the emoji button and shower henry in a disgusting amount of emojis for a friday night click the heart with a plus and begin showering him while i tell you more about henry and please don't stop until i finish speaking okay are you ready go 
Henry is an award-winning journalist at the Financial Times for over a decade now. Currently their political correspondent, he writes a weekly satirical column that goes from Boris to Britney Spears. He was named Interviewer of the Year in 2017 with the British Press Awards, and his work has appeared in The Guardian, GQ, Tatler and Aeon. Uh, his first book, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, explores our relationship with other species and covers everything from farming to pets to zoos and conservation. It's a great read, uh, and I urge you to buy it. Um, thanks for joining us, Henry. Um, what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think, like, why was it so early? Why were my um, kids so loud? I think uh, it was probably the main. Why wasn't it like uh, half past nine? <laughs> I love it. Um, how, what time do you get up as, as a journalist? Are you still getting up super early or because you were the FT no, people come I mean, to you? I, I used to do the day-to-day uh, politics stuff. And then especially with Brexit, you'd like wake up and the world had changed. And so, um, and of course, you know, there are morning emails that go out at 7 a.m., and so you, sometimes you want to be primed for that. But I mean, now I just get up at the, with like, uh, and I don't, I, I actually, I now try not to check Twitter before 8am. Ah. I mean, it's, not, it's not much of a concession, is it? But it, it at least gives, um, gives some breathing space to the brain. I've, I've actually gone the other way. I've actually just started checking Twitter beforehand, but a very selected list that I, I do not make public. So it's actually a very, very curated feed of um, people that I sort of want to know about tech, about politics and that sort of stuff. So it's definitely uh, helping me, I think, get a much broader perspective. And I change it every so often and I have two people check it to make sure that I'm actually um, looking at uh, good sources, if that makes sense. So it's quite interesting. And there's a tool out there as well. I'll find that and I'll post it. But it tells you whether the people that you're following, how where they lead, on the political spectrum as well i must find that as well i'll put that up but um yeah that's helping me a lot sort of change my perspective as well but we will we'll come on to that how have the um last 18 months been for you um yeah i think uh, a lot of it has has gone like when you're writing a book the kind of even a global pandemic doesn't really change the 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 sort of the highs and the lows i mean the highs of like submitting a draft of your book and then submitting the final things um are are so um are so high that it actually coincided with the first lockdown. I submitted the first draft. So, and I still felt like the first week of lockdown was brilliant just because I didn't have to do this book, um, which is lots of fun and everything. But, it, you know, it's obviously, um, it's obviously, a, 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 you know, a lot of hard work to get out there. And, um, yeah, I think like a lot of people, I, um, I, you know, would love to, there are lots of things I'd love to do, although international travel is not one of them. Uh, you know, I'm having a <laughs> holiday in the, in the UK. But I, um, you know, I got to a stage where I'd read every book in my house that I wanted to read, which I thought is a stage I'd never get to. Um, and, you know, so that was um, that was one of the one of the few achievements of the last 18 months. Oh, very, so no, uh, no languages, uh, no new languages. No, my Mandarin is so rusty, you know, I think, uh, and I feel like if not now, never. Um, <laughs> the amount of people who told me, oh my God, I'm learning Italian. And I was like, why? You're not going to be able to travel there for two years. I was like, okay, sure. But then also you've checked in and they're like, yeah, I gave that up three weeks in. I'm like, okay, great. Good to see the tools are all working for people. So yeah. Right. Let's delve in. Um, the subject of tonight is one that I, I personally struggle with, politics, certainly in this country, um, but, but all over the world, I think, as well. Um, give it to us straight, Henry. Uh, what's the state of political power in the UK right now? Who's really in charge? Well, I, I think in general, basically, um, I mean, it's not me. And I feel that <laughs> most of the time, uh, no one is really in charge. I mean, the, I guess the, the, the Brexit 
debate was a really interesting one because it was one where it really could go either way and it depended on the intervention of a few people. So you can make a case that, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was an incredibly influential figure because potentially he allowed a vote for Brexit by not being a particularly vociferous campaigner, but then by being a champion of a big state, then dragged the whole economic debate back to the left, which is where, you know, Boris Johnson is a, is much less... Um, pro-austerity than David Cameron mm. so you can always make so you can you can make cases in that period but I think in general like there's just a lot of stuff lying around and nobody is really um in charge and lots of people have influence at particular moments like you know we've forgotten names we've got people like the DUP I mean the Democratic Union has passed during Brexit they were for a moment incredibly important and then you know have now disappeared in, in, into the um, into the mist, at least at a UK political level. Um, they just don't have the influence at Westminster. So my, my, I feel that there are very few conspiracy theories and very few people um, who are pulling the strings or at least getting the right result. You know, I mean, I think politics is, a, is an incredibly unpredictable thing and you're, you're, you're hitting a ball and then it ricochets off four walls and it maybe goes in the goal, but, uh, you know, more often than not doesn't. I mean, most political careers do end not just in failure, but in a, uh, a sort of um, a lack of achievement along the way. Mm. I, I think it's interesting, the whole political career spectrum, because when you look at it like that, you're sort of like, why would you ever go into it? And that's the thing. When you look at, you know, the, the potential downside, it's quite huge. You know, you're just living your life and that sort of stuff. And then eventually it's a, suddenly a scandal because you're wearing a mask in a car or something like that. Um, I, d- I, d- I don't know why people go into it, but I do understand that once you're in it, you want to get to the top because it's pretty crap being um, someone who's trying to be an MP but isn't an MP. And then when you become an MP, it's pretty crap being a junior MP. You want to be a more senior MP. You want to be a minister, but then you realise being a junior minister is pretty crap, so you want to be a senior minister and take some decisions. And then you realise that, you know, the prime minister is actually in charge of taking these decisions and then you want to be prime minister and then you realize if you get to be prime minister that actually you're not in control of those stuff either so I, I there is really a um a funnel once you get into the game to to keep going how do we how do we change that funnel that that sounds like a, a terrible system of no one's really in charge balls are being batted around and sooner or later it's going to hit you in the nuts or something like that what how how does the system fundamentally get changed? Is it through the courts? Is it through a public uprising? The system seems well, I, to be um, hundreds of I years old. I, was, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really arguing against the laws of physics. I mean, I, I just I think that's to some extent is what politics is like. I um, I think very talented people achieve very little, and very untalented people have a hell of a lot of influence sometimes, and that is is kind of how history is made and how politics is made. I would certainly encourage. Um, more good people to go into politics. I would certainly encourage like better media coverage of some aspects of politics, you know, less of the, uh, you know, ridiculousness. Um, and um, yeah, I think, I think you could totally talk about changes to the voting system that might, um, that might uh, be pretty good. Um, but I don't, I, I, I think you have to accept in politics that, yeah, things are not going to be predictable or fair. I mean, that's, that's yeah, that, that I think is international. Just going up a, a, a tad here, which of the five sources of power? So you've got reward power, coercive power, uh, legitimate power, expert power, uh, referent power. Um, which of those do you think is most or more important or more effective when it comes to politics right now? 
Okay, now is when I need to confess that I, 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 I have started drinking. And so you're going to have to run me through those five again, I, uh, very briefly. I, I am uh, 100% okay with people drinking on that watch <laughs> yeah. and that sort of stuff. Um, right, so reward power, coercive power, legitimate power, what did I say, expert power and referent power. Well, okay, I'm going to save everyone a sort of uh, like a definitional game here where I'm, I'm going to, A, because I'm going to lose it, but B, I think it really depends on the game you're playing and like um so you know for on on some issues a very small number of people can change um policy uh because they just care more about it and i i mean to some extent brexit is is an example of that um uh, it sort of evolved i mean like initially you had people in essex organizing informal referendums because they felt so strongly that they wanted a vote and so they sort of demonstrated it was possible at a local level and then they you sort of that grew and became a a nation a nationwide thing and you know on other issues like i mean you could say on tax havens the financial interests have had a huge amount of power and influence over policy you know the idea that we don't really want to clean up the city or we don't really want to clean up some of our our relationships with um overseas territories because they are quite economically advantageous to certain players you know that's a small number of people having an outside influence but then actually you know the city did not have a a very big influence on the brexit vote car manufacturers who are huge employers did not have a huge influence so it really depends on the particular context and you know if i were if i were a lobbyist advising people um you know i think i i I, you know i don't i don't speak to a lot of them so i don't know but I think a lot of the time you must just have to say, look, I'm afraid a political decision has been taken. We don't like it. It doesn't go with the uh, evidence. But, you know, we're just going to have to lump it, you know. And um, and sometimes you might say, look, it's in our favour because we managed to to pull the right lever. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we had a friend in the min- in ministry and no one cared and they managed to take the decision. So I think it really depends on the context um, of, uh, of, of what you're talking about. Like... Um, but like I think what's been interesting about our politics over the last five years is that quite strong economic interests have just been overridden and they've just been told to get in line. And there's kind of been an anti-business feeling, not just in the UK, but which has played out quite interestingly in the UK. Mm. Um, is there anyone right now who can challenge the Conservatives? Um, and maybe that flipping that another way. If you were in charge of Labour, how would you fix them? I... Um, yeah, I, I sort of feel like people have overcomplicated the Conservatives' dominance um, over the past 11 years, which is, you know, there are all these cleavages of the electorate and whatever. But basically, the Conservatives have had the more charismatic politicians. And, you know, David Cameron was more charismatic, um, seemed more normal, seemed more likeable than Ed Miliband, even, even though you may personally disagree with that, you at, at a nation wide level it was it was true and uh you know these days boris johnson seems a more authentic figure although he has a lot of detractors but seems a more authentic natural figure that fun figure than keir starmer and you know the one time arguably it wasn't true was when theresa may was exposed as incredibly wooden and the conservatives lost their majority Mm. so my theory of politics is that charisma matters a hell of a lot and like if you find someone like tony blair then you're going to win elections whether you position whether you sort of position yourself absolutely perfectly or not and i think david cameron likewise is a kind of election winner uh, boris johnson's an, an election winner um 
And so I, I, you know, the Labour Party can do a lot of soul searching, a lot of thinking about how it engages with the flag and Englishness and whatever. But it could paper over those cracks very easily with a personality. I mean, Boris, like the Labour, the Labour coalition is is uh, contradictory and includes, you know, well off people in London um, and you know not so well off people in in Wales and uh, uh, Northern England. Mm. Um, but so the Conservatives coalition is also contradictory and they managed to paper over it with a very charismatic politician. So I, I, you know, which is why people have gone on or did go on a few years ago about sort of, can we get David Miliband back from New York or something like that? I mean, obviously, <laughs> he's obviously not the right decision. But what Labour, I think Labour will struggle to get into power and suddenly struggle to get into power for a defining period until they have a charismatic politician. And I'm not saying that Keir Starmer can't be that politician, but I mean, he hasn't he hasn't shown it so far. Um, and and yeah, of course, I think I think Labour should avoid um, getting into arguments about uh, the prominence of the Union Jack. And uh, they should probably avoid uh, being seen as a party that uh, cares massively about um, or, or sees as a priority trans rights, not because trans rights aren't important, but just because the wider electorate, the wider electorate, they're not a priority. And it um, it plays into an idea that um, there, there are clever, educated people who are trying to police what the wider electorate says. I think that's very damaging for the Labour Party. Mm. Um, there are a few people requesting a mic. Do me a favour, just click on the blue link at the top, Mouthwash Show, and leave your question up there, and I will do my best to get it in the show. Um, Henry, what uh, real power does the media have um, these days? Do you think it's lessened over the last 10 years because of big social platforms, or do you think they're just failing to use them to their advantage that's a really interesting question and i mean i think the brexit vote would not have gone the way it did had it not been for many things but one of which is the you know the 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 support of um the majority of the printed press for um uh for brexit and you know that not not just their specific endorsement but particularly their cover of, of immigration which you know ever since the vote has completely evaporated as an issue I mean, it just disappeared from the front pages from from one day to the next. It was amazing to see, and so I think on that they did um, uh, they did define the conversation. Um, and you know, you can I think you can see. Um, I mean, you can also see examples where, for example, the Daily Mail has not got what it wants. The Daily Mail called for the resignation of Robert Jenrick, the Housing Minister over his decision to award planning permission to a billionaire he happened to sit next to at a Tory fundraiser and didn't they didn't get the result. They called for the, resign- uh, the sacking of um, Dominic Cummings and uh, over the Barnard Castle eye test mm-hmm. and didn't get a um, didn't get their, you know, a result there. And so, you know, it's too easy to say that a particular newspaper editor can define what happens. But I think certainly, particularly when it's sort of a question of prolonged coverage of a topic like immigration, there there is the potential. And like people will say, well, look, why are these why are these newspapers even influential? Because their their print circulation is going down. Um, but the reality is that they set the agenda for um, the BBC and other broadcasters, which often sets the agenda for social media as well. Yeah, and. I mean, sometimes this can be a you know a positive thing. I think like the reporting the Financial Times did and the Sunday Times did over Greensill Capital and David Cameron and you know what exact lobbying went on 
and who exactly owns these steel plants and why they need to borrow money and whether they borrowed money from the furlough scheme, etc. Um, you know, that's a really good example of the media having influence because eventually if you pose enough questions, um, eventually they have to be answered, even though David Cameron uh, tried very desperately not to answer the phone to my colleague, Jim Picard. Um, <laughs> but I sort of, I, you know, I, I, I think the, the media's influence is a, is um is is it's like a is a fact of life and you can't you can't wish it away and i think that's what was slightly naive about corbynism it said um you know the media's against us which was true but like didn't have a plan to deal with that yeah. other than we'll go to social media and you know social media does not determine what is on the bbc news headlines or and yeah there are i mean there's a more complex story there but i mean i yeah in in short the media is influential you've still got to live with it and whether it's you know whether it's influences like um on some random scale whether it's 74 or 63 or whether it's gone down to 52 then like that doesn't necessarily help you as a politician you can't you know look at look at the royal family they you know they've got very well followed instagram accounts um uh, but they still need to be on the front pages and in the right light. Yeah. Just thinking with um, technology for a second, how much has Cambridge Analytica changed the power of political campaigning, do you think? Um, what, sh- what should we expect sort of moving forward? I don't know. I mean, I think this, the I, I haven't done a whole lot of work on this area, but my, my basic feeling is that Cambridge Analytica, um, like, all, like all things run by old Etonians, kind of, slightly oversold what it could do and what influence it had um so i don't um you know i think people like politicians love the idea of targeting they love um you know the idea and and sort of people who are who are wondering why the conservatives have been in power for so many years love the idea that it's kind of manipulation Mm. but um you know i think fundamentally if you're a um political activist or an advisor to a major party the thing that still matters uh, more than anything, is being a plausible uh, face on the 10 o'clock news. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, it, it's great to think that Cambridge Analytica and, um, uh, you know, in something like the Brexit re- referendum where every vote counts, you know, there, is, there, may, there may have been a role for it. Who knows? Um, uh, I haven't done the work. But I think, I think we overstate it to think that we're entering some age of, um, shady, targeted manipulation. I think it's. I think it's more complex than that. And I think the still the most important thing is to have a charismatic, plausible person that people want to lead the country. Yeah, I agree and I disagree with that. I, th- I think it's important to to use the uh, the data to help people, uh, not to manipulate them, but to give them better information. And I see social platforms as a tool to do that, but I also see them as a platforms of abuse in order, you know, to be abused rather uh, in that sort of do. Um, you wrote a brilliant piece um, that mentioned the pandemic as a chance to recalibrate. Um, do you think that's happened? Uh, um, I mean, the piece definitely happened. The article happened. I remember writing it. I remember thinking, my goodness, you know, like this is, uh, the, uh, you know, occasionally you read back stuff and you think, oh my God, yeah, I'm happy with this. But um, often often you have the opposite reaction. Um, but I think I was, um, I think I was basically wrong, unfortunately. I really hoped that the experience of collective restraint would encourage us, particularly when it comes to climate change, 
And, you know, basically we need to take some collective restrictions now to safeguard our climate. And whether that's a case of simply just cutting back on some very high emitting activities, such as flying uh, long distances um, and, and just holding in until maybe some greener alternatives of those are available. Mm. Um, uh, you know, it, it, there may be a, possible, a possibility of uh, low carbon flying, which hasn't yet materialized. Um, and I really thought that, you know, the incredible sacrifice that people went through um, in the middle of last year would be a model for that. But in fact, what's happened is that people have feel that they've suffered so much over the, 18, the past 18 months, understandably, that they they don't want to consider further restrictions. They don't really want to consider um, uh, sort of changes to to diet, to travel patterns. They um, and I maybe look today. There was a poll out which said that said that a quarter of people would be quite happy banning nightclubs forever. So you know maybe <laughs> maybe this maybe this stuff and you know quite a few would be. Uh, happy with very restrictive border po- policies for a very long time. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is a constituency for really rethinking how we live and how we approach risk. But I I worry that particularly amongst the political class, and this is where I think this is an example where our politics is divorced from public opinion, because public opinion is not pro people going on holiday, is not pro opening up the borders, is not pro removing masks. Mm. But politicians, due to um, the nature of the Conservative Party and the strengths of the backbenchers and their links to local businesses and their desire as, you know, members of the upper middle class to go on holiday um, is very strong. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like the public is, may have learned some of the lessons that I was hoping we would all learn. But politicians, I, I, think, I think politicians are desperate to show that they were the ones who restored normality, that they... So over over um, oversaw the pandemic, did it passably well, and then um, it was all back to normal. And then they can go for an election, and on that on that basis, yeah. rather than being the people who said, "Oh, and by the way, now we've got to deal with this bigger thing, which is climate change." <laughs> yeah, um, I want to talk about grubbiness before I talk about the US, and then I'm going to go on to the book Magic One Time. Um, how do we? You got three. You got three up to three wishes. How do we clean up politics, or are we always going to be destined to have a grubby style of politics? Well, now I mean, like now, I need more than three wishes because you know the nature of um, politics has become has become uh, pretty grubby. I think I think what's become clear in in UK politics is that the ministerial code. Um, relies on on shame, basically, on poli- on prime ministers accepting that when people when when their ministers do things badly, um, that it's so embarrassing that they'll be sacked, and that hasn't happened with this government. So I think there's a real case for putting that on an an independent body to side, really, when there have been breaches of the ministerial code, and that would that would do I think quite a lot to um, to sort of punish uh, bad behaviour. I think the voting system has to be looked at because um, it would increase engagement in politics a lot. It would stop there being people in particular areas who can get elected no matter what. Um, Well, it would reduce the possibility of that. Um, And um, a third wish. Um, Well... Uh, I, get, I mean, something has to be done about the House of Lords, I guess. I mean, like it's um, 
it's ludicrous that you have a chamber which is uh, which has no real democratic legitimacy. I mean, that really makes it very difficult for it to to stand up for anything. Um, so, so yeah. How about sorting that out? I, I like those. I, I think they're I think they're all solid. Um, how do that proportional representation one? I, it, I'm just like it's 2021. Why don't we have that? It just feels like such a smart thing to do. But then you look at the US and you go, oh, that, that could get quite weird quite quickly. And I would never want that sort of scenario over here. But um, let's, let's talk about that. Um, what real power does the Biden administration have over Boris and co? Are they still the, the country wielding the power? Are they, is he doing it any differently? Talk to me about the US relationship with the UK and the wider world when it comes to politics. Oh, wow. Um I don't. I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, so far, um, you could say a very modest um, influence. I mean, the Biden administration has made clear it wants a de-escalation in Northern Ireland, and I think the Johnson administration said, "Well, we can. You know, we know what we're doing, and we know we're not going to escalate it to such a level that the Biden administration is going to get really concerned." So, you know, Biden wouldn't have wanted Brexit, and he wouldn't want this kind of uh, impasse over the Northern Irish Protocol, which means that there are checks from goods, uh, on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Um, but I think, I think the Johnson administration says, well, we can ride it out. I think, I think for all European governments, there's a question of why should we pay too much attention to the Biden administration because we don't know who's, who it's going to be in four years. Um, and we've just endured four years of desperately trying to talk sanity to a US president and failing on things like the Iran deal. So, um, I, I, you know, I, I think the, the, the real, the real interesting thing is, can they, on things where they are pretty aligned, like climate change, can they build up a, a head of steam that, or, um, uh, that really shapes, um, the global agreement on that? At the moment, I um, so I don't think it's a question of the Biden administration so much sort of pulling the strings, but I think it's a it's a case of like what levers do these people have across across the world because for a climate a good climate change agreement you need 190 countries. Do you think they'll ever sort of? I get the sense that basically, if Biden picks up the phone and be like, Boris, do this eventually it would happen in some way, shape or form. I don't think that they, Boris would risk that relationship or do you think that that's unrealistic? I guess, I mean, like, we don't, it doesn't feel like we're in a, a moment where that kind of conversation is going to happen. I mean, it's not like the prelude to the uh, war in Iraq. I mean, you know, um, I think it's much, th- these issues are not so central to what these countries are trying to do and so like even tax you know corporation tax reform i mean it's you know it's, it's not really comparable to the to the moment in the war on terror where um, or the around the kyoto protocol where you had real differences between british public opinion and um u.s public opinion yeah. and where the u.s was very very unpopular i mean i think if if you were to transplant boris johnson onto u.s politics you'd get someone pretty similar to Joe Biden. I mean, not a million miles away. So I think there's a lot of compatibility. I don't see those conversations happening where one tries to bully the other. Mm. I, I mean, I do know that 
you know, obviously, Boris Johnson would love a trade deal with the US. And Joe Biden has no interest in 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 accelerating one, because trade is not popular. Yeah. Um, He's not a big fan of the Brexit, I hear. So yeah. <laughs> um, when you think of the US and the UK, having lived on both sides of the Atlantic, they have very different styles of election, campaigning, uh, general flair, I think, when it when when it sort of comes to politics. Um, we we have a lot of parallels, I think, when it comes to things like voter suppression and voting patterns. They're not so au fait and in, instant, but they're definitely here. Um, same with youth, global minor, majorities and that sort of thing, uh, is, issues akimbo. Um, do you think the UK will ever see an Obama moment in the next 10 years? Um, what, you mean a moment where, where like, uh, people feel they've overthrown some some almost tyrannical regime, albeit democratically elected, like the, the like the George Bush administration. You mean? You well, mean well, those, those of... are your words, but I like I like where you're going with it. No, that sort of <laughs> moment where we sort of like really sort of take stock, reflect, and go like, is this the country? Is this the type of people that I want governing? And that sort of stuff. At the moment, it seems to feel like we vote in a certain way because it's the best of a phrase shit sandwich, you know. And I think. Um, they need when when I think when people always complain, oh, the youth never come out to vote. I'm like, give them something to vote for. Don't give them stodgy old white guys that don't really like understand what TikTok is. Not that a politician needs to, but they need to sort of figure out that you know these are the sort of things that are in people's lives and that sort of stuff. I, I don't see that sort of moment coming. I don't see the people coming up in the ranks where people are like, I'm getting excited about you. You're interesting. In the U in the UK, it just feels like there is nothing political that should interest everyone. But that is, I think, why they do it, so that people don't get involved. Is that fair or am I just a raging millennial? I think people are really interested in politics. Like over the past five years, like political engagement is high. Um, so um, now you, you might be right that young people are dissatisfied with the government. I think the, the okay, an Obama moment is where a you know junior senator um, gets on the scene and then very quickly becomes a national figure and then runs for the presidency, sort of um, uh, very daringly, um, and and gets it. Um, like that is not really going to happen in the parliamentary system because you have to win your seat, uh, you sort of work your way up, and then you become leader of the party. And if you think of Tony Blair, I think he was elected in 83 um, and became prime minister 14 years later. So, I mean, that's what, nearly double the timeline of um, uh, Obama's um, sort of election to, um, to power uh, journey. And so I think you can kind of see your options. Um, uh, you can see into the near future more easily in British politics in terms of who's going to be around. People people aren't really going to burst onto the scene. I mean, they become more powerful, like Nigel Farage went yeah. from being a fringe figure at the turn of the millennium to being quite um, a significant figure by 2015. But um, I, don't, I, um, I, I don't think that that moment of like, oh my goodness, who is this guy we never heard of? Um, that 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 can't happen in in our system. I, I you know, I I feel if you want to get young people to vote, then uh, one very simple way is to change the voting system. And yeah. I don't, I um, like if you t if you can honestly tell people that their vote counts, um, not that they're just doing it out of democratic duty, then that's going to boost turnout amongst all age groups. But you know, probably around by about ten percentage points. So. Mm -hmm.
So that's interesting. So Australia, you have to vote legally. You can go in and rubbish your vote, but you definitely have to vote. Do you think a system like that in Britain would fundamentally change British politics? Or you think, eh, it's just another thing? Yeah, I mean, Australia, as a result, has really great leaders who um, take things really seriously. And uh, it's not vitriolic. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, uh, it's obviously not the, the cure-all. I, I mean, uh, I think when you go and, like, journalists, um, one of our jobs is to go around uh, parts of the country and ask people who they're going to vote for. And you meet a lot of people who just uh, don't care about politics, who don't even recognise you know uh names like Keir Starmer or um or who may even think that David Cameron is prime minister and i think making com voting compulsory is like bizarre in that context because there are just too many people who uh it would be a sort of alien imposition onto mm. Okay, I could talk about politics all night, but I did uh, want to get onto the book because it is amazing. So let's cheer ourselves up. <laughs> um, amazing book. Uh, it looks at the creatures that we all love uh, and have bought in droves during the lockdown. But it's not just about the ones in the home. Um, talk a bit about the book and uh, what, why you decided to write about animals. Yeah, I mean, I, I basically got obsessed with the idea that everybody loves animals. You know, like I spent a whole lot of time watching cat videos and uh, panda videos. Like there's one video of a panda rolling down a hill, I think, at Washington Zoo. It's amazing. And I've watched that a large number of times. And I feel that lots of people have the same experience. And it was like, it's partly a social media thing of, you know, the media didn't see a need to put um, videos of cute animals uh, on the news bulletins all the time. But once people could sort of choose what they watched, with social media, they decided actually they really like watching animals and sharing posts of animals. Um, so I became sort of really obsessed by this idea that people loved animals, and yet what was our actual legacy? And if you were to look at the earth um, as a like disinterested third party, you would say, hold on, like these this species of humans who say they love animals are actually uh, leaving an imprint of animals, which is lots of. Uh, cows and chickens and pigs in factory farms and lots of you know amazing species just disappearing from the planet because we're cutting down rainforests and grasslands and squeezing the space they have available so i became interested in this contradiction and um i also thought well look there must be a way there must be some kind of ethic you can have um or some kind of rules of thumb that would make you lead a good life with relation to animals so like could i find a way that i would want to pass on to my children uh, for living with animals, because I feel that we just most of the time just ignore the question. So let's let's face up to it, admit we've got a problem and answer a few questions about whether we want farming to be like this, how much land we need to take up, uh, whether we think zoos are a good idea, pets are a good idea and whether basically loving animals is something we do in theory um, or whether it's actually something we do in practice as well. I love the bit about um, anthropomorphizing animals uh, and how we sort of treat them. H how important do you think that is uh, to, to how children relate to animals? Well, I have this memory of uh, being told by animals, uh, sorry, but told by animals, no, uh, don't, don't get worried, but told by adults when I was a kid that like, you should not anthropomorphize animals, that like Walt Disney does it, but like, it's all a bit stupid. And, you know, you've seen The Little Mermaid or you've seen The Lion King, but really just put those out of your head because that's, that's not useful. You're imposing human conceptions on, uh, you know, other species. And, you know, for a long time, that was basically scientific orthodoxy, that animals were 
if not machines, but not they're not very advanced beings that didn't have particularly developed needs and that we could sort of shove together in barns and they would be absolutely fine. You could put an elephant in a zoo or a giraffe in a zoo and they'd be fine. And what's really changed, particularly over the last 20 years, is that scientists ha- or have been more confident saying, no, 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 even, uh, even domesticated animals have very complex social lives that are not met within human-made um, uh, environments. And I mean, I think the, one, the idea of an elephant in a zoo is, is quite an easy one to think about. You know, elephants live in herds and those herds kind of change. So people come and go, or elephants come and go from the herd. Now, I think we would all as people hate being put in a flat with three complete strangers and told that's where we're living for the rest of the, our lives. But that's what happens to elephants. They're put in a zoo with uh, a couple of other elephants to whom they're not related often and who they have no choice of about whether they live with these uh, elephants. And some of them get aggro as a result. Or then maybe they have a good relationship and suddenly that, that elephant has to be transported to another zoo and just disappears. And I, we can't know exactly what elephants feel. But a good sort of starting point is to say, well, how would we feel in a similar situation? Uh, and then take it from there about whether that's a sort of ethical state of affairs. So I think anthropomorphizing can be like a good sort of first approximation to um, uh, to um, uh, yeah, to an ethical solution. It can, it can, it's it, it, and it's not fail safe. Like, you know, you can't anthropomorphize a worm um, and you can't um, necessarily, I mean, like, you know, maybe that fish don't feel like they're in crowded spaces when they are in crowded spaces because that's, that's where they see safety, for example. So you know, it's it's not it's it's not fail safe, but I think with with many mammals, we can we can assume that when dairy calves are se- uh, are separated from their mothers, that there is a sort of moment of of pain on the, particularly on the mother's behalf. Yeah. Uh, the book uh, focuses a lot on what humans have gotten wrong when it comes to understanding relating to animals. Um, what should listeners be doing to test possibly redress their relationship and how they see the animal kingdom? Yeah, I um, I think the sort of first thing to do is just to sort of realise that it's at risk. You know, like the animals we take for granted that our kids are surrounded by with toys and uh, storybooks, like they're not here necessarily. Like the giraffe population in my lifetime has gone down 40%. You know, even though they're, they're there at London Zoo poking their heads out and you can see them from the road. Like in the wild, giraffe populations are down 40%. And, uh, you know, there's one uh, sort of projection, I said, which is if we carry on our, on this path in 200 years, the largest uh, land animals will be cows. You know, so all of the things that we think of as sort of magnificent will have disappeared and we'll be left with these domesticated creatures that we've bred to create meat. So I would say once you realise that things are a bit wrong, and I think people have the idea that, like, maybe chicken farms aren't the nicest places and I don't go into it in detail because I think you know people have have already that at the back of their mind then look I would say experiment act on it if you think of yourself as an animal lover do something but you know give up meat um give up dairy or just try giving up some of those things try ordering vegan food when you go out um try for every pound you spend on your pet maybe spend a, a pound on conservation as well um because if you love if you love uh uh, dogs i'm sure you love the idea of wolves or you love birds or you love dolphins 
you know, love animal life wherever it's found. So um, I think it's I think it's basically uh, thinking about your impact on the world, like what legacy you'll leave or we'll, and we'll all leave and then saying, right, do I want to do something about it? Do I feel comfortable being part of a generation which is uh, unfortunately overseeing the beginnings of a mass extinction? Probably not. So, so yeah, let's just do what we can. Let's mm. take small steps. You stole my next question, which was about offsetting um, your pet. I think that was an important... I'd never thought of it before, so I just thought I would bring it up for people. But you met, you mentioned it a minute ago. For every pound you spend on your pet, offset another pound for another species, whether that's conversation, uh, conservation, organisation, charity, and that sort of thing. What other simple things that people aren't sort of thinking about when it comes to pets should they be doing? Well, I think we... like Like, people often say that we we treat pets like children or we anthropomorphize pets, you know, that we, you know, some of the, some, we treat some pets like better than some children, but just hold on. Think about, we don't breed humans to look a certain way. We don't breed them to have flat faces because they're cute. And like, I think we should stop doing that with dogs because dogs with flat faces are unhealthy. They have breathing problems. They have many other problems. Mm. They live shorter lives. And um, why are we doing this to them? Like the aesthetic, benefit is just for us and like if we love these creatures we should see the world from through their eyes and we should say actually they're um uh, this is not a life i want to live sort of uh particularly if you see a um a french bulldog or a pug panting on a hot day some of them are unable to close their eyes because of the way they've been bred so i think this is breeding is something people should really think about and think and you know we should be prizing mongrels we shouldn't be uh having dog shows where we you know prize overbred um pedigrees so i i i i think just think about the impact of um your decisions on your actual pet and like i think we often think and other people have put it better than me but that that loving an animal is enough that feeling that we love them is enough but no, I think you have to move to the next step of saying, well, have I taken decisions to make them to, uh, to, to, to allow them to live a good life? And you mm. can love your dog very much, but as a result, keep them at home when you're in the office all day. And like, that's not a great thing. So I, I would say, but I would say breeding is something where we could really change our attitudes and say it's not okay to breed unhealthy uh, French bulldogs. You know, we should, be, we should be going for rescue dogs, mongrels, and we should be saying, look, if these are if these are animals we love as much as our children, don't don't try and do some eugenic stuff on them. Mm. How successful do you think Peter has been in changing people's minds about elements like that? I think like um, they're kind of, um, I mean, they definitely love love them or hate them. Um, Ingrid Newkirk, who is the founder of or one of the founders of um, uh, Peter, who's a sort of uh, posh English woman is incredibly charming and driven and uh, I, I respect uh, quite a lot of what they've done including uh, at one stage in a slightly ineffectual manner but at one stage they were championing artificial meats uh, lab grown meat yeah. um, which is now becoming a, um, a reality I mean I think the fur campaign was obviously brilliantly effective Um I, I, you know, I, I, I think that social media has given them a, another lease of life. But I think also what I try and do in my book and is to say, look, veganism is kind of normal. You don't have to be really extreme about it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be super motivated about it. In fact, like 
it's actually the conservative option. If you like the world as it is today, i.e. with some forests and wild animals, then if everyone keeps eating meat, that isn't going to exist. So veganism is the way of keeping things like nice as they are. It's not a way of completely change, uh, completely changing the world um, to some sort of hair shirt existence. I mean, one, it, you know, in the 19th century, veganism was also associated with abstinence from alcohol, coffee, tea, sugar, mustard, um, pepper. So, you know, it was it was sort of just deny yourself any pleasure. And I think what I'm trying to say is, well, no, you can uh, um, you can have a, a sort of you can celebrate lots of things about human existence, but just say, I don't want the animal products. And to be fair, I think Ingrid Newkirk of Peter or Petter, um, uh, who is a big fan of Formula One, would probably go along with that, too. Mm. <laughs> I like that. All right. What's the next book about? Uh, no, no idea. No idea. But I think I mean, I think the, the the sort of slight problem we have is that climate change is the big story of our age and yeah. is the, clearly the most existential issue. But it's so existential that people don't want to read about it on a day to day basis. So, like, uh, is there a point in writing about it? Is there a way to write about it? Um, like, certainly if I were telling someone going into journalism what they should be writing about, it would be that or what they will end up writing about. It would be that. But I don't I don't have uh, lots of ways of making it um, making it fun. On a, on a sort of beach read and that you know my 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 one way of you know there is a climate angle to to my book and i mm-hmm. hope it's sort of done in uh from a fun angle of of like what will it mean for other species um and that's the best i could do really no that's cool what's making your brain jiggle at the moment uh, <laughs> well like quite a lot but i've been really wrestling with how much time i spend on twitter and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing i've come down that it's basically a um uh a good thing and uh i've got to just harness it in certain certain ways so i think i don't have to to give up um twitter but i think like lots of people i've I've, i'm thinking like right okay when it becomes possible to see more people uh do i want to do things differently do i want to do things the same do i want to go to the office as much do you are there you know I, i kind of feel like there's much more of a blank slate in terms of social interaction in terms of who one sees socially, what clubs one's a member of. And I mean, like, uh, uh, I don't mean some, like, posh London clubs. I mean, like, you know, just local local groups, you know, what, what can go one go along to? Mm. It's, I think it's completely changed our idea of community being uh, where we, you know, working where we live. It opens you up. So I sort of, I'm looking forward to, yeah, um, changing some things and then returning to others. I'm glad you said harnessing Twitter because it's not Twitter's job to necessarily give you the, the, the instantly pleasurable experience and that sort of stuff. A lot of people open it up and go, oh, this is not my... Do-. And they're, they're the ones that have followed those people and that sort of stuff. So it's your job also to unfollow people that aren't giving you the best signal in life, which I constantly tell people. And they go, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I should probably do that. Never do it. So, you know, we, we make the we make Twitter that we, uh, we, we get, I think, and lots of people miss that. Um, right, okay. Folks, it's time for Henry's Desert Island Tweets. Uh, this is the part of the show where the guest picks a tweet or two that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way. Actually leads very nicely on from your um, point a minute ago. Please turn your attention to the nest. Henry, tell us about this tweet and why you picked this one. God, I feel I feel like I really don't want to depress people uh, on a Friday night. But it says... Um, yeah, spin it, spin it. For me, this is Twitter at its best because, like, what 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 Twitter does make you do is express thoughts punctually and more succinctly. Whereas in other fora, you can kind of get away with, you know, padding stuff out 
you know, on Twitter, you have to get to the point. And this is this is brilliant for me that people complain that this is the hottest summer in the last 20, 125 years. But I don't think of it as the coolest summer of the next 125 years. Glass half full, <laughs> obviously huge. Uh, those sarcasm. But I, I, you know, I haven't spent a huge amount of time in the states, but I did live live in um, San Francisco, and people said to me, "Oh, you know, you're there in June. It won't get very hot because of the way." Um, the weather patterns work and the microclimate of the San Francisco Bay. And it got really hot. It got really <laughs> hot that summer, like records just tumbled. And, you know, there were warnings and uh, extreme weather problems. And I, I, I mean, I was also listening to like Joni Mitchell, California. Um, and there's sort of like this idea of California as this, um, uh, as this peaceful home to which one could return, all what problems would be solved. And it just felt to me like, no, do not buy real estate on the West Coast of the United States. And, you know, the last couple of years have reinforced my view that anyone uh, seduced by the West Coast should um, should uh, not pay the prices they're asking for. And that, yeah, we're in for a, we're in for a rocky ride. But I, I also really like Greta Thunberg's work on this, which is, you know, what's what what helped her when she was struggling with mental health, I think, was just to do something about yeah. it. So, like, of course, if you look at tweets like this you can smile and then you might sort of have existential dread but i um if you if you do what little you can whether it's getting involved in politics or you know changing your diet or not going on a long distance flight or not going on a on a cruise which are like the most polluting things ever and don't definitely don't go on a cruise to antarctica to see the melting ice like just watch that on a tv it seems to me like the most like the like when i write some disaster uh novel about about our um uh, what happened? I mean, like people going on a cruise to see climate change firsthand is like really not uh, a good idea. It's like sort of um, anyway. Um, so I, but but sort of taking those small actions, and it it all adds up. Like your actions will change your neighbours, will change your friends' uh, actions more quickly than you think, and then you'll feel some ownership of the situation. Do you know what? That is a really interesting point. And I, I don't want to leave without talking about that. That personal responsibility element does seem to feel like that it's being lost in society at the moment, ever so slightly, whether it's through, I don't know, people having arguments, the mobile phones, you know, recording, whip out Karenism and all of that sort of stuff. It is a fascinating area, I think, that is half of the problem when it comes to climate change and that sort of stuff, which is a brand new show, which we're not going to carry on right now, but I'm definitely going to think about that and find a guest for a, a future mouthwash. But I think the sentiment you had about making small changes and that is absolutely the right one to leave the conversation with tonight. Um, I can't thank you enough for being part of mouthwash. Um, any final thoughts or advice for the listeners when it comes to um, power? Oh, um that yeah no i i i um uh i, I no i think that's we fine all, you can say no it's okay it's okay to say like, no in the world <laughs> um what, okay i think one thing that i find funny is that people have their models of power and of how things work and the people who are most vocal about it are the people who knew how things worked 10 years ago and then they talk with great authority about how things work now and they're often talking about a particular set of events which just uh, are not going to recur. So if you talk to like the Obama campaign now, I'm sure they'd, they'd be very eloquent and persuasive. But you know, it's a it's a different world, it's yeah. a different time. So I, I I just think don't don't believe too many false prophets. Oof, that lofty for a Friday, but I like it. I like it. 
Okay, folks, that was episode five of season two of Mouthwash. Thank you so much for listening. Um, how do we do? Let me know. Drop me a hashtag, Mouthwash Show. Let me know. Um, really thrilled to have an amazing cohort of brains joining me for season two. I have curated a bevy of smart cookies from Bloomberg's Brad Stone to Beauty Stack's Charmadine Reed. Futurist and Ted Fellow Ada Paris is up first next week. Uh, she and I are going to talk about the power of trust and real transparency. So I dare say I'll be mentioning some points from today. Um, we also have a Kung Fu master and an uncertainty expert slash pirate sam conniff coming up this season so make sure you check out the full show list at mouthwashshow.com uh, you can also download calendars links to previous episodes and there are also podcast episodes on spotify of which this will be one in a future month uh, once again thanks to the uber smart henry mance buy the book uh, and uh, the link is in the nest at the top um, and also find it on amazon as well um, please show your appreciation one more time with a shower of emoji for henry um, as the lo-fi music plays us out thank you for joining and thanks to the beautiful people over at Ecology for planting a tree for every listener we get in season two. I've been Paul Armstrong. This has been Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you more confident only on Twitter spaces. So if you pop, brush your teeth and make sure you never start or finish your day without plenty of mouthwash. Thanks again, Henry. Speak to you all soon. Mm-hmm.